Sometimes though I think, well, how can a person really be born again, genuinely converted, renewed by the Spirit of God, the one who prompts us and leads us and guides us and not pray for 30 days? It either meets, means A, they're a pseudo-Christian, not a genuine born-again person, or they are so far out of fellowship that their heart is a million miles away. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're continuing our look at Daniel and the lion's den. We noted yesterday that because Daniel's fellow commissioner sought to bring him down, they approached King Darius and encouraged him to enact legislation which would prohibit anyone from worshiping any god or man except King Darius for a period of 30 days. How will Daniel respond to this edict? Well, as we rejoin Dr. Brogy, we see that Daniel, who at this point in the story is in his 80s or 90s, had distinguished himself as being very strong both physically as well as spiritually physically and spiritually, and the two are connected all the way through Scripture, Daniel had distinguished himself. Remember, he refused to eat the pagan food that the king offered. And he refused the king's drink. Why? Because it was strong drink and forbidden by Holy Scripture. And so he had distinguished himself by the things he did and the way he thought. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically, Some of us can walk with God, but we can compromise ourselves physically. And so that when we come to the end of life, we don't have the physical capability in which to serve the living God. Now, sometimes, understand, it's not always by choice. The Apostle Paul in his 50s was given a thorn in the flesh. He had some kind of physical ailment. We don't know specifically what it was. If I were a betting man, I would probably say his eyes. But whatever it was, he had a physical ailment that in some ways allowed him as a constant reminder to depend upon God and to walk humbly before his God. Sometimes people have physical impairments because God wants to demonstrate through their life that circumstance is not the source of joy what the living God is. Sometimes there's sickness that comes just because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, some sickness comes as a result of our sin because of discipline. And he said, for this reason, some of you are weak and some of you are sick and some of you sleep. God takes us to the woodshed, sometimes physically, so that we can get our life right spiritually. But then I think there are so many Christians in our day who in their 60s and 70s and 80s lacked the physical stamina to serve God because of the way they lived in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Look, I want to take care of myself now if I can, so that if the Lord tarries and He allows me to reach the age of an old man, you say you're already an old man, I want to be an old, old man, all right? Uh, I, I want to be able to be used by Him. I want to have the physical stamina to carry out the will of God in my life. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians, especially in America, who come to the end of life and they're wasting their lives. Why? Because they're listening more to what the society says and what current Christian America says than what the Word of God says. I meet some older Christians today who are more concerned about their retirement account and their golf game than they are investing in the kingdom of God. Now, look, you may come to the point in your life where you, quote-unquote, retire. 
But as believers, you know, we never retire from life. We are to serve the living God right to the end. And God has no reason to sustain some of us because we're just wasting our lives. Look, God wants you to make an impact right to the very end. And, and I know we've had a lot of older adults in the last five years who've come to Christ. God brought them from other parts of the United States because they were coming from a section where the gospel was not preached. And he brought them to this little town and they found the living God. And I meet some of them and they say, Pastor, I want God to use me. And I love that. I love that spirit. You know, you meet some of these crusty old Christians and they don't want to do anything and they're going to have deep regrets at the judgment seat of Christ. But we are to have an impact on the generation in which we live. We're not to say, well, look, I've, I've served my time and now I can do what I want. No, 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 no. God calls you to impact the next generation. But you won't be able to impact the next generation in your 60s, 70s, and 80s if in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, you're not living for God. He didn't just wake up one day as an old man and, and be used mightily of God. He was being used mightily of God as an old man because he was walking with God as a teenager. God calls the older men in the church to influence the younger men. In Titus 2, he calls the older women in the church to impact the younger woman. One woman said to me, would you give me a younger woman? I said, no, I won't. Go find one. Get involved in the church and find one. Some of you were here at the Wednesday night service, and you heard some of the prayer requests that came that this past week dealt with a lot of young families. And listen, if we're in tune, some of us, I know some of you can't come on Wednesday night, and I respect that. But some of us could be here when we pray corporately and you would start getting in touch with the next generation. This is a healthy church because it's cross-generational. We have young people, old people. We have a mix of the whole community, black, white, Indian, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, German. It's a mix of the whole community, educated, uneducated. And if you get involved and get to know people, you can begin to have an impact in their lives. I think of some of the people that God used, even as an old age. Now, I don't know where Michelangelo was spiritually. I fear he was a pervert. But nonetheless, they said he did his greatest work at the age of 89. Thomas Edison was still inventing at the age of 90. J.C. Penney, who is a committed born-again Christian who gave 90% of his income to the work of Jesus Christ, was still in business at the age of 95. Ronald Reagan, also a born-again uh, president, he was president at the age of 77. John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher at the age of 88, was still preaching four sermons a day. Billy Graham recently squeaked out his latest book at the age of 96. Two of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost and Dr. John Walford, both taught right up to the ends of their lives, 99 and 92 years of age, respectfully. So here's Daniel in his late 80s. Remember, when you get old, you get old one day at a time, and you will never be at the age of 85, which you are not at 25. You say, well, I've blown most of my life. Well, today can be the first day of the rest of your life. Start living for him. Go forward. Now, with that organizational setting given, beyond Daniel's success and prosperity, 
uh, in his promotion. That made him the object of jealousy, which brings us to the persecution by the princes. The persecution by the princes. Look now, if you will, at verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. You talk about integrity of life. They put this man under the microscope and they can't find anything wrong. He becomes the object of an official investigation. They sought to find something wrong in him, but they could find nothing wrong with him. And as you read through it, these private investigators find at least four truths concerning the man's life. First, they look at his professional life. And we read in regards to that, number one, they could find no ground of accusation. And number two, no evidence of corruption. Here's a man in a position of leadership. There's these other commissioners, 120 satraps and some other nobles. And they can't find any corruption in him. He's got a clean record. In addition, number three, it says, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. He was what? Faithful was one, is one word in Hebrew. It carries the idea of someone you can rely on. The Net Bible translates it trustworthy. He was trustworthy. He's a man who took on an assignment and could finish it. And I love people like that in the church. People who are in it for the long haul. People who are not quitters. And beyond his professional life, they looked at his personal life. When they followed him after hours, number four, there was no negligence or corruption that could be found in him. You take those two words together. No negligence, that is the things he was supposed to do, he did. No corruption, that is the things he was not supposed to do, he didn't do. There were no sins of omission, there were no sins of commission. He consistently walked with God. He was the same person at work as he was at home. Or in modern vernacular, he was the same person in the church as he was at work. And that's the kind of integrity that gives you a platform for Jesus Christ. Whether you are an employee or whether you are an employer who own a business and you're serving the general public, the truth of Colossians 3.23 is lived out in this man's life. Whatever you do, do your work not half-baked. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man. Why? Because it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Put Jesus Christ in the face of your employer. Put Jesus Christ face over your company and serve him. That's what this man did. He served the Messiah. They basically say, we can't find anything wrong with this guy. He's clean as a whistle. So what do they do? They conspire a different way. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So four truths surface concerning his personal and professional life. They're all good. And so now they strike out after his religious life. They know he's deeply committed to God, which tells me, by the way, two things about the man immediately. Number one, he's not ashamed of his faith. He's outspoken about his practices and his commitments. And number two, they recognize that his commitment to God was so strong, so genuine, so real, that even the threat of death, as we will see, 
will not deter him from serving his God. I know that from what's recorded here starting in verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. See, since they can't find any corruption in Daniel's character, they go after a weakness in Darius' character. If you know anything about Darius, not only from the secular sources of the day that are available to us, but when you read this chapter, you know right off he's a brilliant man, and he knew he was a brilliant man. He was a great administrator, and he knew he was a great administrator. But he was puffed up. He was filled with pride such that he thought of himself more as a god than he did as a man, which brings us to the pronouncement from the palace. Think about the pronouncement from the palace beginning now in verse 7. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now that's a lie right off. Remember last time we studied in Hebrew the difference between a singular a dual, and a plural. In English, we just have singular and plural. In uh, Hebrew, they have all three, singular, dual, and plural. It's not a dual here, commissioners, it's a plural. In other words, they're saying all the commissioners, there's only three, they're including Daniel in the process, all the commissions, not to mention all the prefects and all the satraps, we've determined that no one should pray to anyone but to you, O Darius, for 30 days. Well, Daniel didn't say that, but they lied about Daniel. And I doubt very seriously they went to all 120 satrapies to find out if all these guys were in agreement. In either case, verse 8, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Now this law, we're told specifically, was according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. What did that mean? Well, among other things, it meant there was no wiggle room. In the Medo-Persian culture, they believed their monarchs were infallible. At least they respected their word that much. And so if a king wrote an injunction, a law, because he spoke infallibly, it would be carried out no matter what, because not to carry it out was to admit his infallibility. It would be to demean his own authority and his own respect. And so here in verse 9, we find this king signing into law this pronouncement, which in essence says, one representative of the gods and one mediator between the gods and man, Darius the Mede. Now, I'm sure when they came up with this idea, it appealed to his pride. He's also a prideful man. We've seen that. It had to be intoxicating to know that everybody in the kingdom for 30 days would pray for him. Even if it expired in 30 days, it made him feel good. He liked the idea, and so he signs it. He falls to their falsehood and their flattery, and he signs the injunction. You know, I, I thought about that this week, and I thought, what if the American government said, no one in America for 30 days can pray to the Christian God. No one in America can pray to the Christian God. And I thought, I wonder what effect that would have. You know, there's a lot of Christians, so-called Christians, who go 30 days and they never pray. There are some people who go months on end and they never pray. 
Sometimes, though, I think, well, how can a person really be born again, genuinely converted, renewed by the Spirit of God, the one who prompts us and leads us and guides us, and not pray for 30 days? It either meets, means, A, they're a pseudo-Christian, not a genuine born-again person, or they are so far out of fellowship that their heart is a million miles away. So this decree goes out, which brings us, secondly, to the devotion of the prophet. In this pericope that follows is a wonderful example of biblical courage. And we see Daniel's devotion highlighted in at least three ways. First, let's think about the commitment of Daniel starting now in verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. He entered his house and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel had a decision to make. This was not some minor inconvenience. Like in chapter 3 with the three men in the fiery furnace, this is first commandment stuff. He couldn't rationalize this. He couldn't, think, he couldn't think in his mind, well, you know, I've been praying all my life. I pray every day three times. What's 30 days? I'll just go 30 days without praying. Oh, no, not Daniel. He loved his God too much. Prayer for him was not just saying, gimme, 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 gimme. It was fellowship with the living God. He enjoyed God's presence. Or maybe he could have rationalized, well, you know, I can still pray. I'll just pray in a way that they can't see me. Instead of being in the upper level where the open window is and where they have obviously spotted me such that they've come up with this injunction, I'll pray down in the lower level where no one can see me. No, Daniel couldn't do this. Prayer for Daniel was an idol-busting commitment. You see, the real temptation was not to pray to some quasi-god named Darius. The real temptation is whether he valued his life more than his love for his Lord. He knew that if he should pray somewhere else, if he had departed from his normal practice, they would easily conclude he loves his life more than he loves his God, and he was not about to allow his testimony to be soiled. This is important to him. Now, there are several aspects of his prayer that I want to underscore in our thinking. First, the position of his prayer. Verse 10 indicates that he prayed towards Jerusalem. Daniel prayed towards Jerusalem knowing that the document was signed. He entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had his windows open towards Jerusalem. Now, why did he face west towards Jerusalem? Well, remember, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. He lives in us. In the old covenant, he would appear, the Shekinah glory, in a section of the temple. It was the holiest place on the planet. And so they would face praying towards the very holy of holies. In Psalm 28 and verse 2, the psalmist said, hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Now, what made the temple holy, of course, was the presence of God. Put out in the margin, would you, next to verse 10, 2 Chronicles 6, 36 to 39. Just put that out in the margin for your further study. 2 Chronicles 6, 36 to 39. See, Daniel, we've already seen, he knows his Bible. He's a man whose life is saturated with the Word of God. And he knew what God had prophesied through Solomon 
400 years earlier when the temple was dedicated. In 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 34, we read this to pick it up in its context. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you towards this city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. You see why this was important? For a Jewish man or woman to pray in the direction of the temple, that's why today Orthodox Jews, wherever they are, you're in the airport, it's time to pray. They get out their compasses sometimes, they figure out where Jerusalem is and they face it and they start praying. You go to Jerusalem today, you go not to the Wailing Wall, it was once called that because they didn't have access into Jerusalem until the 67 war, the other part. But they took it, now it's called the Western Wall. It's not the Temple Wall, it's the Wall of the Temple Mount. The Temple was built up on top, we'll see that when we come later to the book of Daniel in future chapters. But they pray facing the Holy of Holies. This was very, very important to them. Now listen to verses 36 to 39. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, that's Romans 3.23 in the Old Testament, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they are taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity and have acted wickedly, if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been taken captive and pray toward their land, which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, their prayer and supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So that's why Daniel is praying towards Jerusalem. It was a Jewish man basically saying, God, we believe what your word says. We're doing exactly what your word says, and that's why I'm facing Jerusalem. So that's the position of his prayer. Think also about the posture of his prayer. We read here further into verse 10, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day. In the Bible, of course, you find people praying in all different kinds of positions, but kneeling was a sign that you were basically submissive towards God. Now, I know that outward gestures can be empty, but if uh, you know, your kids roll their eyes at you, that outward gesture, you know that there's inward rebellion. There's blatant defiance. And I have found sometimes that it helps me to get my heart humble before God by kneeling before God. Do you ever kneel before God? You ever humble yourself in that way? You say it's not that important. It is important. And I hope you realize there is coming in the Bible a big kneeling day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. So here He is. He's kneeling before God. Think also about the period of His prayer. He continued kneeling on His knees three times a day. He was probably following the example of King David in Psalm 55. Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray. So it was Daniel's custom three times a day that he would set apart his life in a concerted way for prayer. This is the secret of this man's life. And it will be the secret of your life if you pray consistently and you carve out times, not just on the run, but alone, just you and God. He's 
basically about to become the prime minister. He is one of three over the whole kingdom, but he's not so busy or so proud that he doesn't have time to get on his knees. And he does this because he knows his Bible and he faces the living God. He doesn't care what the injunction says because Daniel fears God more than he fears puny little man. Beyond his position, his posture, the period of time, I want you to think about the purpose of his prayer. The purpose for his prayer. Verse 10 further says, He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. He knew sooner or later he was going to get caught, yet as he petitions God, he gives thanks. You know, you've heard me say it many times. There's about 100 verses in the Bible every Christian should know, and one should be 1 Thessalonians 5.18, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, that you give thanks in all things. You know, when you thank God like Daniel was, he was basically saying, God, I believe your promise. In New Testament terminology, I believe that you work all things together for good. I believe in your sovereignty. I believe in your providence over the details of my life. So that's his commitment. But also consider the conspiracy. The conspiracy of the commissioners. We read now, beginning in verse 11, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. These men, they find Daniel praying. They caught him praying, breaking the king's edict. By the way, has anyone ever caught you praying? I'm not saying in some contrived way, but wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if your kids on occasion caught you praying? Do you know what kind of an impact that would make on their lives? Here's a man, he's making petition and supplication before his God. What is he praying? He's praying, Lord God, if it is your will, then I would ask you, I would beg you that you would allow me to come out of this situation well. Look at verse 12. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, this statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. I'm sure at this point they're asking this question because they want the king to doubly affirm what he has already agreed to. And so now the trap is sprung. To listen again to today's study from the book of Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and request program D-A-N-7, Daniel in the Lion's Den. Tomorrow, Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our exciting look at Daniel in the Lion's Den. Join us then as we search the scriptures.